The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Nash. Today, I'm speaking with someone who has one of the most impressive environmental resumes I've ever seen. He started out at the World Wildlife Fund. He's a former director for the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, better known here as CPAWS. He was also the National Conservation Director of the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, and now he's currently a member of the Board of Directors of the Cornerstone Standards Council, Evidence for Democracy, Blue Green Canada, Oil Sands Advisory Group Alberta, and Ontario Great Lakes Guardian Council. He holds an honors degree in science from Wilfrid Laurier and a master's of science from the University of Toronto. With me today is Tim Gray. He's the director of environmental defense with a 25-year history of developing and implementing environmental policy change. Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. Well, thanks for having me. So, Tim, were you always involved in environmentalism? Did you grow up in that sort of environment? I grew up uh, on the Bruce Peninsula, which is between Lake Huron and Georgian Bay in a really beautiful area close to Sable Beach. So I spent a lot of time when I was a kid uh, outside. So I'm, I'm sure I got my interest in, in the natural world from that. But, you know, interestingly, um, at Sable Beach at the time when I was probably a teenager, they uh, started doing development there that really was destroying the dunes and putting in storm sewers that dumped into the lake. And, you know, even as a kid, I thought, you know, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. The entire tourism business in this community is reliant on high water quality and they're building storm sewers that dump into the lake. Like, I just remember thinking, you know, adults are really stupid. <laughs> and I think I went from there. And when I was in university, I was very interested in applied ecology and when I decided to go to graduate school, I, I worked in a lab that worked on acid rain impacts on forests and uh, was very involved in the translation of science to uh, public policy and protecting the environment. And you went to Central America as well with the World Wildlife Fund. When you were there, did you see a lot of plastic debris back at that time? I was there 10 years ago. And I don't think I saw too much, but I know it's a growing problem there because they don't have recycling facilities so much. Yes, it was a growing problem. Uh, when I was working there, it was about uh, 14 years ago, I guess. And, you know, I, I'd been going to Central America off and on since the early 90s for fun. I had a friend that was doing research in, in the mountains of Monte Verde, so I spent quite a bit of time there. And the, the change in the amount of plastic garbage that occurred from the early 90s to the mid-2000s was really remarkable. And, and I know it's, of course, even a bigger problem now. I've been to some places uh, in Central America that are remote and so not being maintained by, uh, say, local hotels or, or local citizenry. And the beaches literally look like a garbage dump. Like they are piled with plastic from the waterline all the way up to the dunes for as far as you can see. That's really heartbreaking. And that's the thing we don't realize. Every time we buy, you know, a single-use plastic bottle, we're, we're voting for that. And even though here in the Belleville area and the Toronto area, we have recycling facilities set up, so we don't see it as much. But a lot of these other places don't have recycling facilities to deal with it. And that's where it ends up. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, I think we... Um 
you know, we could do be doing a much better job here in, in, in Canada and in particular in Ontario. You know, most of the provinces in, Ontario, or in Canada, for example, have deposit return programs for single uh, use containers. So, you know, water bottles, pop bottles, et cetera, uh, plastic ones, is that there's a deposit paid and you bring them back. And that makes a huge difference in the amount that are recovered. Here in Ontario, we produce about 3 billion of those bottles every year. Yeah. And about 1.5 billion of them end up in landfills or on the streets or in our rivers and lakes. So, and in places where there is a deposit return, the uh, recovery rates are much, much higher. In Ontario, we're about 50%. And in places where you have deposit return, it gets upwards between 80 and 90% return. So we could do be, be doing much better here in Ontario. Absolutely. And I'm sure that would help our Great Lakes so much. And you are um, a member of the board of the Great Lakes Guardian Council. And speaking of the Great Lakes, are, how are they doing? Are they are they healthy, according to the council? They're not. And, um, you know, the, the major problems are related to nutrient runoff. And, you know, we did a, a bunch of work as a province and as a country in the 70s and 80s when we first really realized that the lakes were essentially dying and cleaning up uh, our sewage treatment plants to reduce the amount of phosphorus going into the lakes then. But what's happened since then is there's been more and more fertilizer put on farmland, and a lot of that fertilizer is running off into the streams and rivers and ending up in the lakes. This is particularly a problem in Lake Erie, which is quite shallow and quite warm. It warms up very quickly in the summer. And we've seen algal blooms there that have produced toxins that have made the water undrinkable for some people that rely on it for drinking water, such as cities like Toledo, but also have caused a lot of mortality in, in fish and made the fish inedible. So there's real economic consequences as well as ecological ones. And we're really hoping to try and address that by reducing the amount of nutrients going into the lake. The other problem, of course, is toxic chemicals uh, that are getting in from industrial processes and then just the massive amounts of plastic that we were just chatting about. Absolutely. I know that there's a lot of microplastics that are being found in the Great Lakes. And uh, there was an issue with microbees a while ago. And I wonder if you had anything to do with that, because I believe that the Canadian government has banned uh, microbeads. Yeah, actually, the ban comes in on July 1st this year. And yes, that was one of our, our key uh, campaigns was to have microbeads banned from consumer products. They're not in any way necessary. You don't need plastic beads in your skin wash no. in order to get your face clean. It's just, it, it doesn't actually do anything of use. It was a marketing gimmick to get people convinced to think that their face would be cleaner if their soap had plastic beads in it. And of course, they were accumulating on the bottom of our rivers and lakes, and they were being eaten by fish. And they were also absorbing uh, toxic chemicals onto the surface of the plastic beads, and then that was helping bring them into uh, fish and creating greater toxicity in our environment. So we're really happy to see that uh, the federal government has moved to ban them and, and that ban comes into effect uh, in July. That's great. I think that we can take that as a good example of what we can do as a country and on a federal level. And you wrote an article in the Toronto Star, which was excellent. And it was saying that Canada should lead the way in waste reduction at the G7 summit. So I'm wondering, what will that look like? Yeah, I, mean, I think the federal government has a, a role here. If you think about what we've tried to do as, as a country on climate change, is the federal government tried to set the bar and then uh, get the rest of the provinces to to meet that. And they were, you know, had some options around how they could do that. You know, 
for example, on reducing carbon pollution, they could have a carbon tax, they could have a cap-and-trade system, they could have other tools they might use, but that if they didn't, the federal government would step in. We could do a similar thing with plastic waste. You know, set um, targets at a federal level that have to be met. So, for example, the federal government could say, you know, we've decided that we want to see 90% recovery of plastics sold. And provinces, you can use your own waste management legislation to achieve that. But if you don't, there will be penalties. And uh, we will collect, uh, you know, the penalties and, and distribute them directly to municipalities to help them clean up the mess that's not uh, not being addressed because your programs are ineffective. Mm-hmm. There are other tools that can be used, but I think what's important is to set some clear requirements and have penalties for not reaching those targets. What do you think about clear garbage bags. I always thought that that would help because then municipalities could refuse to pick them up if they're full of plastic bottles or food waste. Yeah, it should help. But then it requires um, the decisions being made by the garbage collectors dealing with unhappy uh, people at curbside that haven't had their garbage collected. You know, it's a very, very inefficient way of, of trying to get people to comply with the system. And even when we do collect recycling uh, in Canada, one of the challenges is that an awful lot of it, you know, people feel good because their garbage bag or their garbage container is small and their recycling bin is full. But a lot of that, unfortunately, is not actually being recycled. It's ending up in the landfill anyway. Exactly. Because of contamination of the supply and because of lack of facilities to actually clean that up and put it back into a proper a remanufacturing stream, a deposit return programs for plastic bottles or deposit return for packaging, et cetera, or mandated reductions in packaging make a lot more sense and are a lot more effective. Because you can imagine if you bring back plastic bottles to uh, the store that you might have bought them at and you put them into a machine that um, you know, is like a return vending machine and it gives you a receipt for the amount that you put in, those bottles are immediately shredded up by the machine into a bag, and so then you know, the the person that wants to remanufacture plastic bottles has a very clean supply of plastic. It's not contaminated with paper and all kinds of other stuff because people have actually brought them back and sorted them and put them in a machine, and then the plastic is clean. So we need to think about systems that actually ensure that this material can be reused and not end up in a landfill. Absolutely. Italy has that program. And then there's a company called Cinturama and New Life, and they're taking those plastic bottles and spinning them into a yarn. And then they're being used to make clothes now, which is really, really great. And I know Quebec had a had one of those machines. I'm not sure if it tore them up once you put the bottles in, but they definitely had them in the grocery store. And then British yeah. Columbia as well has the bottle depot. Uh, so you can mm-hmm. return your bottles. And also with that, you would get people who are going to clean up the roads a little bit more because they they want a little bit extra cash. So if there's if there's value in cleaning up a roadway, I think that would encourage some people to do that. Yes, in Vancouver, in fact, you might have noticed um, that the garbage cans that are out in public spaces actually have a, a rim around the perimeter that you can leave your plastic bottle because then others can come up and pick them up and, and take them in for deposit if you don't want to. Oh, that's great. And you never see a plastic bottle on the street in Vancouver because there is deposit and, and people will pick them up because they have a value. Yeah, it's so clean there. I love living in Victoria. And we would leave our bottles outside, like our beer bottles. So instead of taking them back to the store, which is a very, very good thing to do with your alcohol bottles, but we would put them out at the road and then people would come and take them for us and then go and get the return themselves. 
your current role is with the Environmental Defense Canada. So can you tell us what is environmental defense? We're an organization that really encourages the public to take action in their communities and to uh, influence the behavior of companies and to influence the behavior of government. Uh, We really believe that people need to take individual action in their lives, but that in itself is not going to be enough to to make a difference to actually protect our environment or transition to a cleaner economy. So we really believe that business and government need to take action too. So we really try and channel our supporters into interacting with um, major companies that they might shop with or with their elected officials to make policy change so that we change the rules and laws around how our environment is protected. That's awesome. So if Canadians want to get involved with reducing our waste output and this sort of thing, uh, we can, is there, is there a way to sign up for environmental defense? And then There is, yeah. You can go to our website, which is at environmentaldefense.ca, and you can see all the range of issues that we work on, uh, Great Lakes protection, climate change, plastics, Uh, toxic chemicals, and there's a variety of ways that you can get involved. That's awesome. And you guys are currently working on uh, waste and plastic reduction initiatives, I take it? We are. We are. And we're really focusing on uh, trying to get a deposit return system brought in here in Ontario and to get the federal government to adopt a a Canada-wide strategy around plastic reduction. There was a previous episode I did with a scientist down in Georgia, and he was telling me about Tybee Island. So it's this beautiful little island off the coast of Georgia, and they do a lot of uh, science projects and whatnot there with kids in the summer. And they decided to ban the plastic bag. But lobbyists from the plastic bag industry came in and stopped it. And they weren't able to ban plastic bags because of this, this lobbying pressure. Does this happen in Canada Well, we did have a similar situation in the city of Toronto where the council did ban plastic bags and that was reversed. And there's uh, very intense lobbying by the plastics industry. I don't know if you've seen some of the the media on this recently, but, you know, one of the plans of the oil industry in the face of electrification, you know, more people buying electric cars and, and declining demand for oil to be used in transportation fuel is to double the amount of plastic produced on the earth. Oh, please tell me that's not true. Yeah, because that's where, um, you know, oil, of course, is used to make plastic. And so there's an incredible uh, business driver to try and increase the amount of plastics that are being used. But the consequences of that use, especially when it's not being recovered properly, are huge. People were just wasting plastic bags. You know, they didn't need them and they were piling up and they end up in the streets, etc. And, you know, you really see the that to be true when they, the supermarkets start charging five cents for them. Uh, we've seen about an 85% reduction in the number of plastic bags used because people do not like to fork out <laughs> any of their money, even five cents, <laughs> for something that they don't really need. So it really got people thinking about, well, do I really need that bag or can I bring my own cloth bag or a more durable plastic bag to the supermarket and uh, just really reduce the, the consumption? So that has worked. Um, Many countries are moving forward on on banning plastic bags or plastic straws. And I think that that's what is going to end up happening. And I've been trying to, you know, talk to people from the the chemical industry and the the oil industry and just say, like, you know, you people really need to be supporting much stronger recovering and reuse programs. Because if you don't, the, the public is going to get so fed up with the massive amounts of pollution in our oceans and in our lakes, on the land, 
but they're going to want to see these these products banned. And uh, it would be much more uh, you know beneficial for them as producers of these these products to really support them being properly recovered so that um, we're not wasting all this plastic. Absolutely. And I, I am very surprised that five cents works because I've talked about this before and it wouldn't work for me. Like I don't care about five cents. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you wouldn't think that it would, but the the data is, shows very strongly that it did. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's awesome. That's really great. Uh, but I just, I worry about these things. Like, is it enough incentive? It's interesting you say that this bag fee worked because no wonder you are pushing the bottle return because it's it would be ten cents, I think, right for a for a bottle. yeah, it would be yeah, yeah. So that really adds up fast, and it's it's great. So I'm I'm on board with this. I like it. I think it will work. The other really great advantage of a deposit return system as well is that there is a little bit of money left over from it, right? Because you can imagine if uh, everyone's paying ten cents per bottle, and even if ninety percent of them come back, right? You know, some of them disappear into garbage or you know whatever. Um, that that money is then left in a fund that can be used for other environmental activities, like helping to clean up the Great Lakes. So, you know, you sort of win on both ends. You really reduce the amount of garbage. You recover more clean plastic for reuse, and then you have money left over to run environmental programs. So, is that a ten cents that's tacked on at the cashier? It is. With environmental defense. Is this the most pressing issue, is getting the government in Ontario to implement this bottle return system? Or is there another issue that you're working with, maybe nationwide or something, that's just like the biggest, most pressing issue right now? Yeah, I mean, I think all of, uh, you know, all these things are linked together. So I think that the biggest issue at a macro level is just the way that we go about uh, industrial production at a global scale, right? Like we have this idea that we can produce plastic or oil or all these things and then just dump the products into the environment, right? And that somehow we don't pay for that. Of course, ultimately, we're all going to pay in a way that we can't afford to pay <laughs> in that we're causing our ecosystem to collapse. So we have to we have to change that approach, and we have to really realize that we have to pay the full cost of producing these products, uh, both to encourage people to use less of them, but also to ensure that um, they're being properly recycled back into the economy. So you know, probably the the most pressing of all of those is what's going on with climate change, right? Because if we do not address climate change, if we do not bring down our emissions very rapidly then you know we're going to face a situation where the climate changes so fundamentally and so rapidly that our civilization is not going to be able to continue. And by addressing climate change and learning how to do that, how to retool our economy towards a, an energy economy that does not use fossil fuels, very much helps us to learn how to deal with things like plastic, biodiversity loss, thinking about the limits to our growth and the way to live on a planet in a way that it will be sustained for future generations. But all these issues are important. But to me, like the thing that is really driving this conversation, making people really aware that we're way beyond the limits is what's going on with climate change. Absolutely. I totally agree. It's terrifying. And one thing that we see here in this local area is the ticks. And ticks are an indicator of climate change. Because when I was little, I grew up in the forest and we could go build forts and roll around in the grass and we never saw a tick ever. And now, you know, it's it's April and I've pulled seven of them 
off of my dog already and they carry diseases. They're a big deal. Yep. So if you think you're not affected because you don't live right near the ocean, uh, you're going to be affected. There's a lot of bad things coming if we don't get this fixed. And I actually have a question for you, which isn't totally related to zero waste, but it's something that keeps me up at night. I wonder as Canadians, how we can get away from fossil fuels when we live in a car culture. I mean, a lot of us need a car to get to work. And also we are a very cold climate. So, I mean, I think most of us, if not all of us, burn a little fossil fuels to stay warm in the winter. I mean, what is the way forward for Canadians who live in this society? Yeah, there's a couple things. So on the transportation side, of course, it depends on where you live, you know, about how much you can change your fossil fuel consumption habits in transportation, right? Like if you live in a city, uh, and you don't live very far from your work or school, you can make choices around walking, taking your bike, taking public transit. All of those things are obviously much less carbon-consuming than if you drive your car the two kilometers to your office, which mm-hmm. I know some people do. <laughs> but if you live further away, um, or if you live in a rural area, then you're going to need some kind of vehicle. But then, you know, the choices you can make are to... Uh, buy a vehicle that uh, is maybe a bit smaller than the one you currently have. So maybe if you have a big uh, eight-cylinder car, the next time you buy a new car, need to replace it, look for something smaller. Or uh, move toward a car that perhaps is partially battery-operated and has a, a backup gasoline motor. That way you don't have any of the range restrictions you get from a purely electric vehicle because the, you know, mm-hmm. the gasoline engine can come on when the battery's done. But the overall fuel efficiency of those type of vehicles is very, very high, two to three times higher than a typical, even efficient, gas, purely a gasoline engine. So you need to sort of think about, like, what choices can you make given your lifestyle and your needs? But most of us could do better and also save ourselves some money. Mm-hmm. On the housing side, probably the the easiest thing for most people because you don't change houses every year if you own your own home is to um, when you make decisions about replacing your windows or um, upgrading your home in any way is to you know caulk around your windows uh, replace windows with higher quality ones um, upgrade the insulation in your house when you change your furnace go from you know the current one that may be only 70% efficient to one that is 98 or 99% efficient which is sort of the the, the new kind of standard if you have a gas furnace if you're building a new house you know think very carefully about uh, how much energy you want it to use and i think in the long term for canadian society uh, this is like over, you know, 10 or 15 years, we really need to make sure that our electricity grid is increasingly being powered by wind and solar and hydroelectric and biogas renewable fuels and move our interior space heating away from fossil fuels to electricity, Mm -hmm. electricity that's being produced by renewable means. But that takes time. The houses obviously have to be converted. New houses, you want to build them with things like uh, heat exchangers and, and uh, geothermal so that they can use electricity efficiently. But these things will, will take time. They can't all be done overnight. I think the most important thing to remember as a person who owns a home or a car is when you're going to make a change uh, is to think about how you might do it in a way that is more energy efficient. It doesn't make much sense to um, say if you've bought a new gasoline car to like run out and get rid of it. <laughs> yeah. uh, a, that's very expensive. But B, that, that car is going to still be on the road whether you're driving it or not. So 
It's about creating longer-term demand for much cleaner products by making those decisions when you purchase something new. Absolutely. Something that's a little bit difficult about switching to, you know, biking or or walking or whatnot in a city is that I find more and more the housing prices are going up. So if you want to move to Toronto to get a job, it's really hard to actually be able to afford a place that's probably going to be near your place of work. And I saw that in Vancouver and Victoria happen 10 years ago. So it kind of pushes people out a little bit, which is problematic. But also at the same time with technology and with the internet, it's more and more common and more accepted to work at home a few days so that you don't have to go and sit in traffic for 40 minutes and produce all that carbon just to get to work. You can actually get all your work done from home, you know, maybe one or two days a week, depending on what you do or um, depending on the organization. So I think that stuff like that can help as well. It definitely can. Um, you know, being able to work remotely can help if you're in a situation where you have to commute long distances. Of course, if you are driving in a car to commute, making those choices around what kind of car to, to drive will both save you money and, and of course, have less pollution for the environment. Um, the provincial government and the federal government together with the cities within the GTHA are investing heavily in new transit over the next number of years. You know, we'll be looking at having electrified all-day go service, so you'll be able to get back and forth from many cities within the region that are on the go train network much more easily than you can now. You know, that's a much less stressful way to get back and forth if you have to commute. I know my, my partner works in Burlington, and and uh, we live downtown Toronto, so it makes it a lot easier if you're on a train and can read or uh, sleep for an hour than being stuck in traffic in your car. Absolutely. So it'd be nice to see that more in Ontario. From Belleville to Toronto, I like to take the train, but it is more cost efficient to drive. So I think yes, that's that a little... part of the problem. And the yeah. price structure is such that if you already own a car, you think, well, you know, <laughs> I could pay this via ticket two ways, but uh, otherwise I could pay just a few dollars for gas, right? Yeah, exactly. So, Tim, I'm wondering if you have any advice, because I know that I have a lot of young listeners out there who likely dream of having a resume like yours. So I'm just wondering if you have advice for people who are starting out their careers. How how could we get on that environmental path for environmental protection? You know what I think, uh, based on what I see in our in our office, is that it's really good to develop a, a specialty in some area that you, that you can be very good at and very deeply knowledgeable about. You know, for example, we have you know people in our office who are experts in public health or in chemistry or in environmental planning. So something that you know you have like a, a deep technical knowledge in. And then it's very much more possible to then you know, learn about the policies associated with that in society and, and the, the business side of that and bring that to an organization like ours and really be able to provide that, that deep knowledge that can be used to make change. I think that's, in my experience, the, the people that work in the environmental movement that have the most to contribute are those who have that uh, deep knowledge of a particular area, business or science or economics, because they uh, have the, the, the deep knowledge to be able to engage business and, and industry and the public on those topics. Absolutely. That's some great advice. And I've heard that before, actually, from a filmmaker, that it's basically just find something that you're good at, which is similar, I suppose, and then and use that to help and just help however you can. Yeah, it really makes a big difference. Some people think that the best way to work on environmental issues is just you know know a lot about what environmental issues are. But 
I don't find that's the most productive path. I think actually having deep knowledge about something in particular and then uh, figuring out how to learn other tools about making change in that space is probably more effective. Absolutely, because there are a lot of solutions we need to find to all of these problems that we've created. So I would like to see more recycling facilities that can take things like tiny pieces of plastic and whatnot. And I know TerraCycle in Toronto is doing some great things with that, but just to recover all that stuff so that we don't have to send it uh, to landfill. So I hope to see more of that. Exactly. Well, Tim, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I think you've given us some wonderful insight into sort of how your organization works and what's going on in Ontario. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. And I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you. Thanks. Have a wonderful day, Tim. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. This week on my Countdown to Zero Waste, I attended a meet and greet with a politician who is running to be the next premier of my province. I asked him to reconsider his stance on the Greenbelt in Ontario. The Greenbelt is a protected area of farmland and forest that cannot be developed surrounding the GTA, which is the Greater Toronto Area. This politician is interested, if he wins the next election, in opening up the Greenbelt for development, but I think it's important to curb development around cities. Ontario isn't full of farmland. A lot of it is Canadian Shield, which basically means rock. We have certain pockets of farmland in certain areas, and unfortunately, the farmland that's all around Toronto is being developed like crazy. We're basically putting houses and developments on top of farm fields. I went out early in the morning and got to shake his hand and just mentioned to him that I do really support the Greenbelt and that I hope he reconsiders his stance on that. If you like our show, you can follow me on Instagram at Zero Waste Countdown. That's zero underscore waste underscore countdown. And if you have any questions or ideas for the show, you can email me, laura at zerowastecountdown.com. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. <laughs>